Dark matter is simply, you know, um, no offense to anyone, but it's that goth kid over in the corner that you don't know a lot about. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Adam Bradley, who is an experimental particle physicist. We will talk about all kinds of awesome stuff like dark matter, dark energy, antimatter, the Large Hadron Collider, um, two major experiments that Adam has worked on being the Lux Dark Matter Experiment and the Majorana Double Beta Decay Experiment. Um, This episode is considerably longer than a usual half hour intern episode it's a little bit over two hours of an interview um i consider releasing it in multiple parts but i think that this is kind of the way to listen to it It is just all together all at once um so during the middle of the episode is where we talk about the two major experiments that that adam has worked on and i try to do my best to uh kind of translate everything into layman's terms and ask the right questions to adam to um break things down into kind of simple terms that being said it still is kind of dense and heady so if you are not a big science nerd or really into that feel free to skip forward to about an hour and 28 minutes into the interview at which time we start just talking a little bit more about the life of being an experimental particle physicist and kind of more importantly and more interestingly we talk about the philosophy of science and the concepts of faith and religion um, and stuff like that given what adam does for a living and adam is a religious guy which kind of surprised me so we talk about how being an experimental particle physicist allows for that um and yeah just a lot of other philosophical stuff with regards to what adam does for a living so without further ado here is experimental particle physicist adam thanks so much for being on the show man well thanks for having me blake yeah absolutely i dude i am like so excited for this interview and this episode i used to be and still am like so fascinated by the universe and astronomy and like what makes up the world and the universe and what goes on there was a time period in my early 20s where i almost bailed on my career so that i could go back to school and try to do astrophysics little did i know that my business background was not going to bode well for me starting over and doing astrophysics so i i couldn't really do that but i am i'm like thrilled for this interview so um yeah man let's do this thing why don't you first um explain to everyone what the what exactly an experimental physicist is and i guess i imagine that the kind of the two main camps of physicists are experimental physicists and theoretical physicists and if you want to like go over the difference right right so um so yeah that, that there i guess you could say there's two camps and throughout grad school um i would always tease my theorist friends and they would tease us back and forth um, about, oh, you're just an experimentalist. You're just a dumb wrench turner. Oh, you're just a theor- theorist. You just sit at a desk and don't get to play with any fun toys. Um, Dude, that's so funny. That was actually <laughs> going to be one of my questions. Is I, I, I imagine that there's very much of you guys poking at each other. That's funny that there really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one, one friend, he'd often say, hey, I, I got a wrench out to adjust my desk the other day. I can do this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah for sure i i i imagine like as a uh 
an experimental physicist, there's almost a little bit of like animosity towards a theoretical physicist. Like when you're having to get down in the shit and like really figure out how to do these things. It's like the theoretical person's like, oh, like I think that this could happen. And then they move on to the next thing. Meanwhile, you have to spend the next 20 years of your life actually figuring out if that thing can happen. So is that is that kind of how it works that the theoretical physicist comes up with a potential idea and then you guys have to determine if that potential idea is actually real or not yeah i mean that's that's i guess that's more or less what you could say it's it's just depending on the field so um physics is a broad many branched that's got its fingers in other side fields um entity um so i work as an experimental physicist physicist i work in particle physics i would say that my degree my phd is in particle astrophysics uh, because we were building a a detector sensitive for a certain theoretical particle, but the the questions, the scientific questions we were seeking to answer had astrophysical and cosmological um, consequences mm-hmm. and 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 origins and motivations. Um, I had friends who are in what is called uh, soft matter or condensed matter. And that's um, looking at maybe cr- the crystal structure of, of matter, maybe growing crystals or maybe using lasers to, to probe. I, mean, I don't mean crystals like new agey crystals, but um, as in a form of matter, which is uh, of a repeating atomic structure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, most solids are crystalline to some degree. You know, some not, you know, wood is not very crystalline. But uh, the LCD in your watch is is a crystal that's a liquid form, or you could have the silicon in your uh, computer chips is a um, fairly one hundred percent pure crystal. Um, and then, but the, you know, condensed matter people, you're working on a bench top with lasers, um, stuff like that. You know, you can cycle through experiments in months to a year and then move on to some theoretical question um in astrophysics and particle physics you have to build telescopes um satellites uh, uh, experiments held by balloon by weather balloons that go into the outer atmosphere um you know particle colliders like lhc in uh at cern in europe Took twenty years to build. Yeah, just um, crazy. My my thesis experiment. I was there from its um, uh, when it finally got funded. So the rough idea had been mapped out, and then the funding agencies gave us the go ahead. That was the end of two thousand seven, and it still ha- it's it's in the middle of its full three hundred day data taking cycle. Eight years later. What's so crazy about that thought is that nowadays, like how how sped up the rest of the world is nowadays, you know, like um, like a computer chip is, you know, whatever it is, like every six months, like doubles in speed or something. It's like it's so insane. I, I, I imagine there's almost like a fear there for the type of physics that you're doing that shit like what if we dump all the money this money into this thing and by the time we're done building it 
some other area of science basically debunks what we're even trying to do or makes it irrelevant what we're trying to do or whatever. And meanwhile, we've like barely even gotten started. Well, I think because we're at the forefront of all things, that isn't so much a worry. There might be... So when you get really big, you can't make 10 of these experiments. You can make one, maybe two. So, like, there's only going to be one Large Hadron Collider. Right. And they're not going to make, you know, right now there's, there are plans. What is the next collider we're going to make? Should it be linear? Should it be circular again? And there's only going to be one of those because it's going to be so big and so expensive. That's all you can do. Right. Um, so maybe, like, in the condensed matter field where it, it happens a lot faster or, like, biophysics, it happens a lot faster, you might... Um, you might have that worry of of technology or, or someone, but you know we're inventing the technology that totally. will surpass. Like you know, as an undergrad, I did experiments um, in my lab classes that won people Nobel prizes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight decades prior. Wow! And now a twenty-year-old dumb college student is going you know going through the steps and reproducing Nobel prize-winning research. Yeah, totally. Um, in in so th- there is you know maybe the worry not so much that technology will surpass us but that we plan based on what the current technology is and you can't help but there being better technology to help you come along so you have to play that well do I stick with the older technology because that was the plan and the funding and all the engineering around it or what normally happens is oh this is better let's use this newer thing as this one small aspect instead of um, relying on this older technology. Our, our work is a lot of custom-made stuff, a lot of, um, but, and also a lot of off-the-shelf parts that we put together in a custom way. Yeah. And so maybe there's some pressure detection technology because we make, need to make a vacuum vessel. And so we need to detect the, te- the, te- the, detect the pressure... Um, reliably and then have it do it electronically so that we can record it and go over the data later for correlations with our, with our science data. And maybe, and I saw this myself, you know, my advisor in, in my PhD work was, um, he knew of one set of technology for, for measuring pressure at low pressures. And he was always looking for what is the better technology to use. And he found a really nice all-in-one package, basically plug-and-play. And instead of trying to futz with an older technology that was a little more finicky, we had a very nice plug-and-play, just seal it onto the, the, its detection um, parts facing the inner chamber of this large vacuum vessel, seal it on at the port that we've des- designated for it, and there you go. Brand new technology, but of one very small aspect of the, of, the, of the whole experiment. Right, and that sounds so like, oh, well, duh, yeah, of course you would use the newer, better thing, but that's got to be kind of a difficult thing most of the time where this entire experiment has been theorized and written around an existing set of technologies, and now if better technologies come out, like how does that impact everything, and where do we actually use these new technologies, and and uh, yeah, that's got to be strange. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said before, it's it's a given play, and also because we're at the forefront of technology, um, maybe computers will get better and faster, and that's great for us because we we we're just producing bigger and more amounts of data. But 
Um, if it's not a computer, you know, technology, I don't think technology moves that fast. You know, we're, we're not making electric cars. We're not making new power cells. Right. Um, especially in particle physics, you're using, say, in a collider, large magnets that are in a vacuum space that are supercooled with liquid helium to accelerate ions. I mean, that basic technology is decades old. Yeah. It's just unless somehow like a more it. dense magnet comes out or something, right, it's not right. really. And help when you. it does, you like, well, we can't use that because it won't work as a whole. We'll we'll set that aside for the future. You know, like a magnet in a in a particle um, accelerator is a key component. So you don't want to keep chasing the newer and better because it may not be tested and vetted to be reliable, stable, and the like. Right. Right. All right, dude, let's, um, so we'll come back to some of, to like questions, I guess, just re- regarding physics in a little bit, but um, I'd like to a little bit talk about your thesis project. Um, then we'll talk about what you're doing right now, and then we'll, we'll come back to some physics related stuff. So um, your thesis project was working with the Lux dark matter experiment, right? Yes. Okay, so uh, would you mind if I take a crack at explaining the Lux Dark Matter experiment, if I could, and you can <laughs> correct me where uh, where I'm wrong? Sure. Okay. So my understanding is this. So first of all, I guess we should set the stage with uh, that dark matter and dark energy make up about like 95% of the universe. Like all the matter that we know about is only that like that we can see, touch, measure, whatever is only about 95% in the universe. Correct. Five, oh, I'm 5%, sorry. 5%. Right, yeah. And right. dark matter and dark energy that we can't interact with or measure or anything is 95% in the universe. So, right. Um, so in the way, my understanding is that the way that we know that dark matter is a thing um, is it was first theorized well, I guess in the 20s by some guy, but really first observed by this woman in the 60s or 70s. And she noticed that she looked through a telescope and noticed that galaxies were spinning so fast that they should be tearing apart, um, that there wasn't really enough mass. She was able to measure the mass inside the galaxies and that they were spinning so fast that they should just be ripping apart, but they were not ripping apart. So basically there had to be this unaccounted for matter somewhere inside those galaxies. And she theorized that that was dark matter later on that was able to be confirmed by like light shift and whatever else. Um, but is is that correct so far? Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've, you've hit the points. Okay. So, and then dark energy was theorized because we noticed that. So like in our, in our solar system, uh, planets that are closer to the sun, like Mercury, are uh, going around the sun faster than planets on the outside of our solar system. Mercury uh, goes around the, the sun very quickly, like has a year that is much faster than ours, and Pluto has the slowest year out of any of the planets in the solar... Well, I guess Pluto's not a planet anymore. I forgot. <laughs> but it, it goes much slower around the sun than things that are in close. So we figured that, the, you know, those are the laws of gravity, and that's why that's taking... Uh, you know, the further out you get, it makes sense that you should be going around the sun more slowly. Slowly. Mm-hmm. So at some point in time, people observed that uh, with galaxies, the edges of actual galaxies are spinning just as fast as the center parts of galaxies. So they're not following the same principles that we see in our solar system. So that was basically the onus for the theory behind dark energy is that there's some sort of energy around that is causing the edges of these galaxies to spin just as fast as the inner part of the galaxy. Is that right? No. no. So you are still describing dark matter. Okay. 
Help dark me out energy, here. dark energy is 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 com- a completely different idea. Um, so it's it does happen. It does have to do with galaxies. So um, we all know the name Hubble, right? Yes, Hubble Space Telescope. Well, it's named after an astronomer, Edwin Hubble, who in the twenties um, was measuring what was known as diffuse nebulae. And using redshift, which is basically the Doppler effect for light, um, m- measuring the redshift or the just measuring the light from these diffuse nebulae and noticing that using known distance measuring techniques, things that were further away had a greater redshift than things that were closer, meaning that um, the farther away something was, it was moving faster from us. Right. And um, that, coupled with other observations, led to the idea of the Big Bang. Well, let's do this in reverse. And if things are moving away from each other, then at one point they were all really close together. So we have the Big Bang, uh, a super infinitely dense, infinitely small, the universe, all of the universe, all of space-time is in this point, this singularity, and whatever happens, there's a whole branch of theoretical physics that covers this, whatever happened, whatever caused it to explode, to expand, did so, and the universe expanded. The first part of it is known as um, inflation because it expanded exponentially fast. And there's other, you know, there's theoretical reasons as to how that works. And then it slowed down. And then as, you know, think of it as a gas of of light, a gas of light. And the light is so energetic that when it crashes into each other, it can form matter. And that matter will crash into each other and reform light because it was so hot. It was this very small, dense, hot soup. And as it expanded, it cooled down. And so um, the matter that was being formed was being formed less. And because it was moving slowly, it was cooling down, um, they weren't crashing into each other and, and radiating back into photons, into light. And so you get matter and light are separated and then you have gravity, you know, this stuff isn't, is, is uniformly distributed throughout the universe to one part in 10,000. But that is enough of a difference of the distribution of matter that you get slightly overdense places and slightly underdense places. And the overdense places happen to be where dark matter was. Hmm. And because dark matter doesn't interact the same way as normal matter, they became these gravitational wells where normal matter fell in and became attracted to each other, and those were the seeds of galaxies. And the whole while, the universe is expanding and cooling and cooling and cooling. And another observation that we know, in addition to Hubble's diffuse nebulae, which we learned to realize, oh, those are, those are galaxies. Before 1929, we had no concept of the galaxy. We kind of had an idea of the Milky Way because you could see it at night, in very dark regions. But, you know, if you think of medieval times where you thought you had the earth at the center and then these perfect spheres, crystal spheres that all the other planets stayed on and then just a permanent 
background of stars behind that. Up until the 20s, even though we had gone to a Copernican system where it was heliocentric and not geocentric, we still kind of had that same idea until the 20s. And then we realized these fuzzy patches we see outside are conglomerations of thousands and billions of stars in individual galaxies on their own. Right. And if you look up the Hubble Deep Field, that's an image of the universe that's a couple of degrees on the side, and there's millions and billions of galaxies just in that. Yeah, so beautiful. Right. And so the so we've got dark matter in there that 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 helps seed galaxies, but then what dark energy is is at some point the universe started to slow down in its expansion and but then it started to speed up and it started to speed up and it's and when we measure the acceleration of things when we measure the leftover light from the big bang which is the cosmic microwave background so that was the other measurement from the 60s that coupled with hubble's measurement from the 20s that gave evidence to well everything exploded out from a single point billions of years ago. And we see the light left over. When the light has cooled down and can't interact readily with matter, that is now known as the cosmic microwave background radiation, meaning that throughout the cosmos, there's this background radiation that's at microwave wavelengths, which is a couple of feet. Um, A wavelength of light is anywhere from a couple of inches to a couple of feet that's um, that's a microwave. Visible light is hundreds of um, millionths of a meter in wavelength. So very small microwaves are are bigger. Radio waves are like meters in wavelength. That's why a radio antenna has to be really big, but your phone can be the size of your pocket because the size of those waves for that antenna to pick it up are much smaller. Damn, that's crazy. Basically, you're, I mean, this is getting far afield, but this is physics. Everything's interrelated. Yeah. The size of your antenna, the size of your receiver needs to be the size of the wavelength you're, you're doing. So like the microwaves in your microwave oven, the reason that there's that, that netting in the window that looks like a bunch of little holes is punched through a sheet of metal. Mm-hmm. Those are smaller than the wavelength of light, or the wavelength of, of the microwaves in your oven so that the microwaves can't penetrate out through the window but because they're holes and you can see through that space in the glass in between you know in that metal you can see through it but the wavelengths light can't come out that's so funny so that way you can still look at your food while it's cooking you and you're not your going to just melt your brain right. because visible light is much smaller than the size of those holes but those holes are smaller than the size of microwave wavelengths. Wow, damn, so, so they're, they're, interesting. I'm so happy to be talking to you. To, <laughs> I mean, if we get nothing else from this interview, that and the whole cell phone radio tower thing is fascinating. Right, right. So um, going back to, to dark energy. Yeah, stop we, the suspense. Come on, man. Just we tell don't us know, about the dark energy. We don't know, well, we don't know. We don't know what it is. All we know is that... But I mean, what, you, did, what did we observe exactly? So it was just that we observed that the, the speed of everything started picking up again, and we don't know why? That's part of it. And when a really, really precise measurements of the, the um, uh, differences in the distribution of, of, of light throughout the cosmic microwave background, these ten, one in 10,000th difference of temperature um, that we can measure across the entire 
universe um, gives rise to, well, we have a model for how things should be distributed. How much, you know, you talked about dark matter or dark energy making up 95% of everything in the universe and normal matter being 4%. Well, the, um, the, the split between dark energy and dark matter then of that total 100% is dark energy is about 70%. Dark matter is about 26%. Normal matter is 4%. So 70% of everything in the universe based on a theoretical model that the data fits to very, very well from these precise measurements says that there should be something out there that is like an anti-gravity. It's pushing things apart. And it, that, that, that is what is currently fueling the expansion of the universe. Other measurements from the cosmic microwave background should say that the curvature of our universe, and this is, could be, can be a very abstract concept, but um, we can make measurements and say, well, is the geometry of our universe like Euclidean geometry from high school? Is it all flat? Or is it like trying to do geometry on a basketball? where it's all curved but closed? Or is it like trying to do geometry on the saddle of a horse, where it's, where it's an open geometry? And to within great precision, our universe is, is closed and flat, but expanding ever onward. And it's... If it's closed and flat, you could say, well, it's just going to keep expanding at the same rate with zero acceleration. But we found that we have positive acceleration. And that started about, oh, I, you know, I'm not going to get the number right, so I'm not going to give it to you. But um, you could, How is that possible? I mean, it, just in, it doesn't matter what the number is. How is it possible that that started at any point in time, like as if there was just some genesis of dark energy at some point? Like, didn't everything have to come from the Big Bang? Like, it didn't just appear out of thin air, like all of a sudden dark energy's here in the <coughs> 1970s and things sped up. I, how is that possible? Well, um, if you have any... Physicists in your audience, they might write in and say, well, Blake, it's actually X, Y, and Z. And you know what? <laughs> you know what, guys? Please do, because I wrote a small section of this uh, in the intro chapter in my thesis, and that's all I really know. I've sat through talks. I don't study dark energy, <laughs> so I might get something wrong. Um, no, dark energy was always there, but the size of the universe and the amount of mass in its distribution was such that that was the dominant um, um, force, was that you had all this matter, you had radi- uh, um, and matter was dominant. Mm-hmm. And so, you, so because of gravity, you could see, oh, the universe was slowing down in acceleration because of matter dominance, and it might close back in on itself. Well, oh, we found, we found through earlier measurements of the... Um, cosmic microwave background is that and the distribution of galaxies throughout the universe that no it won't close in back on itself it'll just keep expanding but at a fixed rate so basically the ratios of dark energy to dark matter and matter have shifted is what like the current thought right right there's a really neat plot i i wish i could Maybe I could dig it up and you, you can put it on the show notes or something. Yeah, for sure. Um, where it basically shows that the density 
which is the amount per volume of something. Um, at the very beginning of the universe, it was mostly photons, and for a good chunk in the middle, it was mostly matter, and now it's um, dark energy is the dominant, the dominant material or stuff, energy in the universe. And it, it, it has this, this um, repulsive force that pushes things away from each other, and so it's separate, it, it, it works at extragalactic scales. So a galaxy is well-bound um, um, gravitationally. So dark energy doesn't work at a um, galactic scale. But I think I read recently there might be some tests where it could be working at a galactic scale, and that would help us learn more about it. But as far as I can remember, it doesn't work at the galactic scale. So it's just pushing its... its pushing the space between galaxies apart. And so the galaxies which are in that space are just being moved apart from each other. Okay, cool. So for us, luckily, to our knowledge right now, it's not like ripping apart our solar system. It's just ripping apart the the area between our galaxy and other galaxies. Yes, for us right now. But in trillions of years, it will rip apart individual atoms. All right. Well, hopefully I will not be around then. That, uh, no, fingers no. crossed. All right. So now that we've set that super confusing background. So actually, let me ask another question about that. Cause I, yeah. I just have so many questions about this. First of all, how the hell is it possible that there is more dark matter and energy than regular matter and energy? I feel like everything... And I, I guess I have the same question about like matter and antimatter after the Big Bang and everything. But like in nature, like with the things that we know to be natural, there seems to be this very beautiful yin yang split of things. You know, like I feel like it should be there's 50% dark energy, 50% dark matter. And that makes up 50% of the universe. Then there's 50% matter, 50% regular. It's like I feel like the numbers should shake out like that. Like how is it even possible? Like how is it that physicists think? that it came to be an not a 50-50 split how how is it not just even or at the very least like dividable by pi or like some other <laughs> normal nature thing well um i I'll, I'll answer with as much detail as i can muster because um what you asked are still outstanding questions within physics research I mean, we don't know the answer to a lot of what you just asked. Um, why is matter and antimatter? Why do we live in a matter-dominated universe and not antimatter? Or why isn't there equal amounts? You're right. Matter and antimatter were created out of the energy of the Big Bang in equal amounts. But for some reason, matter is now dominant. We don't know why. Um, the work I'm doing right now and similar experiments on in neutrino physics. And other work at colliders are probing the question of this matter matter antimatter um, difference. Uh, so that's an outstanding question. Why, but why is there more dark matter? Um, I since I did a thesis on dark matter, I, I think I should be able to answer this. Um, so dark matter, because it's a different form of matter, which we don't know. We don't know what it is. It could take a myriad of forms. It could be one type of thing. It could be a dozen types of things um, pervading the universe. 
I like um, to think that it's like you know in Star Trek um, or lots of things where they'll be like the evil version of someone and it's just wearing a goatee. <laughs> I like to think that dark matter is like Adam's wearing a goatee. You know. <laughs> well, so dark matter isn't. That would be like antimatter. Antimatter is Adam's wearing a goatee. It's, it's the exact opposite of normal matter. Right. Dark matter is simply, you know, um, no offense to anyone, but it's that goth kid over in the corner that you don't know a lot about. But he always <laughs> seems to be there. He always seems to be a part of the big social group, but no one interacts with him that much. And he's a big guy, too. He's a big goth guy. He's awkward in his body. You know, he's 17 years old. He doesn't know what he wants, but the cure is really cool. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you were that in co- listeners, if you were that in college or high school, I mean, no offense, but it paints a, a visual image that we all understand. Yeah. And apparently you're the dominant force in the universe. So it's all right. good. <laughs> right. And that goth kid grows up to be, you know, Mr. Silicon Valley or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, exactly. He's the, he, he, he's a, he was actually dark energy. He's a dominant force in the universe. Um, um, but yeah, we don't know a lot about it, but what we do know is that because it's a different form of matter than normal electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks, the like, um, it formed out of the big bang before normal matter. It stopped interacting with light. Actually, it never interacted with light. That's why it's dark. But it stopped interacting with each other um, early at an earlier age in the universe. And that's what allowed it to clump together to form these uh, gravitational wells I spoke of earlier that after light and normal matter stopped interacting with each other, normal matter and light fell into those and became the gravitational wells and became modern-day galaxies. Right. Um, but why is there more of it? Um... You know, I'm sorry, Tom Shutt, my PhD advisor, if I should know this, and you signed my thesis because you thought <laughs> I did, but off the top of my head, on a Friday afternoon, I've been sick all week, I don't know this. No, yeah, no, <laughs> I, to, my, to my knowledge, the, the, there is nothing, like, like you said, like, we don't know this. I was just wondering, like, your uh, physicist opinion is as to why, like, if you have a guess at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Like I said, I think there is an explanation. Off the top of my head, I don't remember what it is. Um, but I could probably dig up some papers and next week have an answer for you. All right, cool. There, there is an answer as to why there is more dark matter than normal matter. I just don't remember it right now. Okay, cool. Awesome. We'll put some links to uh, to that kind of stuff on the uh, on the show notes as well. All right, so with that super confusing, uh, super awesome <laughs> background, we'll go into your uh, your thesis project, which was the Lux Dark Matter Experiment. So obviously mm-hmm. now everyone knows what dark matter is. So the Lux Dark Matter Experiment, Lux stands for Large Underground Xenon. Uh, mm-hmm. So xenon is, is a gas, correct? Yes. So <clears throat> I you'll have to explain to us why it was xenon, but basically it's super weird. Um, they... The science community, uh, this started in one spot and now it's happened in several places, have 
kind of bought out the rights to some old mines. Um, like, let's say, I think there was one in like, you know, like North Dakota or something like that that used to be maybe an old iron mine where they had to dig down like a mile underground in order to get this iron out of the ground. Well, now there's no more like iron there really to speak of. So the town is kind of abandoned, but there's still all the mechanics left over in the elevator and stuff like that for people to be able to go a mile underground. So in order, uh, somebody theorized that we would be able to where dark matter does not interact with regular matter in any way. So mm-hmm. dar- the, currently right now, if you're driving in your car or if you're listening to this at the gym or wherever you're listening to this, there's just millions of particles of dark matter like flying through you. If you look at your hand right now, there's just dark matter flying through it. It's, and it's not interacting with you in any way. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just doing stuff. So the theory was, though, that you, you would be able to somehow see something about xenon you would be able to see the dark matter uh have an influence over the xenon so either it would change the temperature of the xenon ever so slightly if it were to bump into it or it would cause like a little light flash if it were to bump into it so um you wouldn't you still would not be able to capture the dark matter per se but you would be able to prove its existence by seeing the fact that it interacted with the xenon so the reason that they do these experiments so deep underground is that as we talked about like cosmic radiation and stuff like that that if you were to do these things above ground, you've got microwaves, you've got this, you've got that. There's just millions and millions of cosmic particles that are not dark matter. They're just actual matter flying around all the time. So that's going to be constantly interacting with the xenon. If you go, you know, as deep underground as possible, you would get to what would like, quote unquote, be a very quiet place um, where there wouldn't be a lot of cosmic interference and they actually put these giant xenon containers inside a larger container of water so the water would even further kind of isolate the xenon Um, and then you have the xenon tube there and then you have all these measuring tools um, waiting to see if anything bumps into the uh, the xenon was that an okay job did that kind of explain it um yeah you did a pretty good job um it's a gold mine in south dakota Okay. <laughs> Damn it. Ah, I said iron and north. All right. So gold mine in south. And then, you know, in I think it was an old copper mine in northern Minnesota near the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. There's a working nickel mine in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, which has a um a large section that's devoted just to science. And that's now the deepest one. Like which one is that the deepest one now? That's, one of them's like two miles or something. Um that one is sixty eight hundred meters. Damn, that's insane. So a mile is a mile is five thousand two hundred eighty feet. So that's got to be right. almost three no, 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 miles. No, 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 no. I was wrong. It's sixty eight hundred feet. Okay, right. so yeah, like a mile right, and a half. Right. right, right. Um, right. So, yeah. all right. So why? First, tell us why xenon. Why, why is it that you have to use xenon um, as opposed to anything else? So um, we use xenon. I mean, there's actually a a bevy of um, experiments that use many different materials as their target their their, their target mass. Um, germanium, little hockey pucks of germanium um, that are super cooled and um, outfitted with careful electronics. There, there's buckets of neon, buckets of uh, argon. Um, which are other heavy gases, but these, it's not just in gas form. It's also they're condensed. So we, Lux is um, it's called a dual phase 
experiment in that it uses both liquid and gaseous xenon. Um, there are uh, experiments that use just spheres of enclosed liquid noble gases. So, listeners, if you don't, if you don't remember your high school chemistry, break out your handy dandy table of um, elements and look at the far right column that's topped with helium. Then you get neon. What's um, after neon? Argon, krypton, xenon, radon. These are all gases you might know as the inert gases, the noble gases. Um, they, uh, these are all really good to use because they're noble, they're inert. They don't readily participate in chemistry. Now, you might say, no, they're inert because they don't participate in chemistry. Well, when you get to an atom like xenon, xenon is so big that it can... It, the a individual atom can itself be polarized and create a slight offsets of the electric charge. And that's what chemistry is all about, is offsets or unequal electric charge and ways to neutralize that offset in electric charge. The reason two hydrogens bind to one oxygen and give us water is that at a, as a total, there is a sharing of electric charge so that every atom has a full shell of electrons at any one time. Xenon has that all the time, but it's so big that it could have a slight polarity in its charge and actually participate in chemistry. But that's getting far field. Um, um, Does that Xenon, have to do with why you use it for the experiment? Well, it has to do with some of the difficulty of using it. Because it does this, well, actually, why do we use it? It's very large. A single xenon atom, a, your, so xenon has a number of isotopes. They have masses all around 130 atomic units. And that means they're all about, they weigh about as much as 130 individual protons. We want something very heavy because there's the idea of, hey, dark matter is very dense, meaning that single particles of it could weigh as much as a single atom, which is made up of, I just said, hundreds of individual particles of xenon. Mm -hmm. So xenon is 130-ish protons and neutrons in the nucleus plus, uh, what's the atomic number? I think it's like 50-something um, electrons spinning around it. A single dark matter particle weighs as much as all of that in a single atom of xenon. What we're looking for is what's called billiard ball scattering. It's in, um, you, when you want to make a measurement where you can readily and easily measure the energy of the recoil, you want the two things hitting each other to be roughly the same in mass. Hmm. Um, you know, if you've ever held a ping pong ball on top of a basketball and dropped it, that ping pong ball goes shooting off because the exchange of momentum is so different because you have a large basketball and a very small ping pong ball that um, it would be very hard to measure the actual exchange of energy because they're so different in mass. Right. But in the mass range that an experiment like Lux is doing, it's looking for something that is um, equal in mass. So let's use of, of something very heavy. So let's use something very heavy. Xenon is the heaviest, most stable gas in existence. 
Okay, that radon totally makes is, sense. Yeah, radon is heavier, but radon is radioactive. Every isotope of radon radioactively decays. Um, and so we can't use it as a target material. And in fact, it is a nuisance for backgrounds in our experiments, radon. Right. Um, things like germanium can look at for dark matter in a slightly smaller mass range, or you know, lower uh, a, a range at a, at a lower value because it's lower in mass. Um, so what we've done underground is basically made a nested, vacuum insulated bucket of xenon that's been condensed to liquid. And that happens at about minus 100 Celsius. Don't ask me Fahrenheit. You know, I'm a scientist. I remember it in Celsius. Yeah, I think it's like 700. I, saw, um, I think I saw it today. No, it's not 700 because absolute zero is like minus 400 Fahrenheit. Oh, well, then it's definitely not yeah. 700. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's 170 Kelvin, which is roughly minus 100 Celsius. Okay. Um, and... This very heavy, dense gas, we've made even denser by liquefying it. Because as we all know, liquids are denser than gas. It's so dense that helium, that sorry, aluminum floats in liquid xenon. Hmm. You could throw in a chunk of aluminum and it's ever so slightly less dense than liquid. Um, I think it's like 3.5 to 3 in density units. Hmm. And so helium will float just barely bobbing above the surface it, of, of, a, of a bucket of liquid xenon. Wow. And so the experiment itself is, um, you describe there's different ways you're looking for heat to be released. So say like you have these very cold hockey pucks of germanium, they're looking for minute amounts of heat of the jiggling of the whole germanium crystal lattice if dark matter were to hit it. Whereas um, what a bucket of xenon is looking for is light that is produced if dark matter or, or similar type particles were to hit it, hit a single atom. Um, some electrons would be released. And so we've set up an electric field in the whole experiment, a stable but very high value electric field um, so that we can pull and drift away these electrons to produce a secondary light source. And those two light sources are measured very precisely, um, I mean, not light sources, but light bursts, by an array of 120 um, what are called photomultiplier tubes, which can multiply the signal from a single photon hitting its sensitive part, producing electrons, and those electrons cascade and become a signal that's millivolts in size. When you think of, you know, your nine volt battery, well, this is uh, a thousandths of a volt, but that's easily measurable in off the shelf equipment. Right. How and is you, it that we would know that it was uh, dark matter that hit it and that it wasn't just some sort of other cosmic ray that made it all the way down there? So uh, um, the thing, the cosmic rays that will make it all the way down there are muons. So muons are the heavy cousin of the electrons. But just like the electron, but they're much heavier and they have a very short half-life. A muon, when it comes into existence through some particle interaction, um, only lives for about 2.2 microseconds. So that's 2.2 millionths of a second. Um, 
be, but they go very fast. So if you did your math and you said, okay, cosmic rays, I know are protons or iron hitting the upper atmosphere and creating a shower of particles on the surface of the earth. And I know the height of the atmosphere, let's say it's 150 miles. And I know that, let's say these things are traveling, you know, a good fraction of the speed of light. Um, 2.2 microseconds isn't nearly long enough for a muon to make it not into the surface of the earth but then another mile into the earth well it's traveling so fast you have to take um special relativity into account and so it lives longer because it's traveling faster and so some of these muons could travel a very small fraction of them because we are a mile underneath the surface of the earth for a reason but some of them do come all the way down and they might kick out some neutrons or they might pass through that that tank of water you described well the tank of water is also instrumented with very large photomultiplier tubes and muons give off of when they pass through a medium they you will see them no matter what they like an electron they're just heavier they produce a, a light shower and so in our data we tag it or it is i should stop saying we because i'm no longer on lux but um no, I was on Lux since the beginning, so I, I very much think of it as my own. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. Um, so like a muon, cosmic ray, we'll tag it in the data and say that you know anything that we see in our detector within, let's say, 10 microseconds of what we see outside the detector, we just throw it away because anything that we would want to see would be flooded out by a cosmic ray coming through. Right. It would have never been detected in the water. It would have only been detected in the xenon. Right, if right. It really, so, were it's dark, dark matter. So, so continuing on to why, how we know, the one thing that could really screw us over is neutrons, because a neutron is a massive neutral particle, which is what dark matter is. Now, dark matter is much heavier, but the signal is very similar. But that's again why we're in a very big tank of water. Water is mostly protons. A neutron is basically a slightly heavier type of proton. Um, and again, physicists, please don't email this poor host and say, he got this wrong. It's not a proton. I'm, <laughs> you know, it's, they're all subatomic particles. We get it. Um, um, because it's mostly water, any neutrons coming from the rock walls, from radiation or cosmic rays, kicking them out, will bounce around enough that they won't be a problem when they finally get to the detector in the middle. Okay. Um, they'll lose energy passing through the water. Um, so how do we know? Well, one thing we know is, well, we have this large bucket of xenon. So there's stuff near the outsides, but the very center, there's no stuff. There's no other material. It's just liquid xenon in the center of this liquid bucket of liquefied xenon that has photomultiplier tubes looking at it and an electric field established throughout it. And so... One thing in the data is you cut away any data that appears in the, out, in the outer reaches of the xenon. Anything near the walls, anything near the top and bottom. You just throw that data away. And you do, but you, you work very hard to build an experiment such that anything that would come from the materials would be very minimal. And you, do very, you work very very hard in the data analysis to say, well, I can, I can know when something is coming from the outside. And xenon is so dense that anything coming from the outside will stop within a couple of centimeters to a couple of micrometers. Hmm. 
So anything from the outside will will show up in the data in an XYZ that says it's along the outside. So you just throw it away. Even if we miss dark matter, you know, we're never going to see it with other stuff going on. Yeah. And so then what you do is you make sure that your xenon is very clean. Because it is a liquid, things can get dissolved into it. And I mentioned earlier why xenon is so hard to work with. It is a solvent. Because it's so big and it can basically self-polarize, it, it will dissolve things on the walls of your chamber and just dissolve it into itself. Oh, shit. So we have to constantly purify the xenon, pull it out, send it through a purifying agent, put it back in, in a constant circulation at um, 50 standard liters per minute. So every minute, 50 liters are coming out, being purified and put back in. Um, and so, and and that's because there's a, there's pla- in Lux, there's a lot of plastic. Plastic absorbs things out of the atmosphere, and when you put it in a vacuum ch- chamber, that stuff will work its way out. Um, we do, we, we clean everything in solvents and in detergents and we handle everything gloved and in a clean room. So we avoid as much dust and hair and skin oil as possible. Um, and you, you just make a very clean environment so that if you do see something that's in the center or in the center volume of the liquid xenon, it can only be. Um, coming from the xenon itself or what we're looking for. Yeah. And if it's coming from the xenon itself, we haven't done a good enough job. And so we have to look at the data and do uh, a, a complex statistical analysis where we say, given these parameters and given this data, what do we expect our results to actually be what we're looking for? And... Um, the first run of Lux, which is in 2013, my thesis data, uh, my thesis um, work was uh, on the analysis side was on that run of data, and it basically said, well, we're about 35% sure that we didn't see dark matter, and that's pretty bad. So, um, or is it 35% sure we did see dark matter? Whatever it is, again, since statistical analysis i i can't re- can't keep the thing straight yeah 35 percent is not going to carry any weight anyway so it's exactly exactly i think it's like you know you want it's called a p-value you want a p-value very very small like yeah. 0.05 and our Less p-value 0.05 yeah right our p-value is 0.35 so wow so a p-value for those that don't know what a p-value is they use that for like medical experiments and stuff like that too for like a new drug that's released or a medical device or anything like that for any statistical experiment p-values are used and so 0.05 would refer to like five five percent um so you're looking what 0.05 like a a p-value of 0.05 means that 95 percent of the time if you were to run this same experiment you would have gotten the exact same result that you got this time so like if you said there is dark matter for sure we know it's dark matter because these things happened and their p-value of that was 0.05 that would mean that you were basically 95 percent sure that 95 percent of the time that you ran that same experiment over and over and over again you would get the exact same result and that 0.05 is the like 
de facto number that is looked at for by like the FDA for releasing drugs, um, by the <laughs> FDA for medical devices, and I'm sure uh, you know by the scientific community for whether or not a a study is bunk or you know a good study. Right. Yeah. No. Th- thank you for for elucidating that because I can never keep it straight. <laughs> yeah. For sure, man. So, all right. Let's uh, let people in on the really crummy part of all this. So. Uh, from what I could tell, it, it, in maybe maybe to what you were saying earlier, part of it was the building process. But I was watching some videos online, and a gentleman was saying, um, and maybe this is the first one in South Dakota that he had been working at the mine for like twenty plus years now, um, and that they've still found nothing. Is that is that correct? We've been looking, we've been doing these Lux experiments for twenty years now and found nothing. Yeah. So my. Um my PhD advisor was one of the first students on an experiment back in the 80s and early 90s that uh, tried to use these hockey pucks of germanium to look for dark matter. And that's what he did his th- PhD thesis on. And he's a full professor. He, After I left Case Western Reserve University, uh, Go Spartans, in Cleveland, Ohio, two years ago, he and his partner professor, they have this joint group, took a position out at Slack. Sanford Linear Excite. Well, actually, it doesn't stand for anything, but the, um, the scientific <laughs> facility next to Sanford. Um, and uh, they're still looking for dark matter. You know, he, he did a PhD thesis, graduated in 1992, and 23, 24 years later, He's, his his whole career has been looking for dark matter. So please explain this to me, and then and then give maybe give us some other examples in history of times when people have looked for something for this long, not finding it, and when they kept looking, kept looking, and then ultimately found it in science. But I I I all right. So like one of the earlier uh, episodes that actually was my first episode was about bird watching. So if I had never done bird watching before. And I was from the planet Mars. Like I went, I went to Mars, and I'm like, I'm gonna try bird watching on Mars. And I brought my binoculars, and for 20 years, I did not see birds, even though like someone had told me, like I heard a rumor or theoretically there were birds on Mars. After 20 years, I would just be like, okay, one of two things: either that person was wrong, and there's not actually birds on Mars, or these binoculars are broken, and I need to get some new binoculars. Uh, what like? Why are we still looking? What makes us what makes us think that this isn't broken? Um, it, it's a couple of different things. I think one of it is the joy of the hunt. So I had two PhD advisors. Like I said, there's these two guys, Tom Shutt and Dan Akarib. They're both at Stanford now and at Slack. So go look them up. They're great guys. Um, you know, listeners, I'm I'm glad to have gotten my PhD under them. Um, they uh. My my Dan, so my other advisor Dan, he got his PhD in collider physics, and he um, did a first postdoc in collider physics. And um, he, he said to me, you know, I uh, it, it became like farming. You create a really good apparatus, and you just produce particles, and you look through the data, and you find what you hope to be looking for. Or you could be a hunter, and you're laying down a trap. And you hope to see something elusive. And so that was his metaphor for collider physics versus, say, particle astrophysics or neutrino physics, where um, it's, the, it's the thrill of the hunt. Um, it's also, you know, going back to the very beginning of the podcast, the give and play between theory and experiment. Um, 
when we don't find something that we expect to see in a certain place or that we hope to see, theorists are 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 both elated, are both saddened and elated. Saddened that their current theory doesn't hold. Elated, oh, they can make more. So basically, as long as long as the on the theory side, there's no theory that comes and debunks the idea of dark matter. We're just going to keep on doing this experiment until yeah. something else comes around. Because what else are we yep. going to do? Yep. Interesting. That's and so. Then, like, how how is it even okay? Then then explain this to us. How is it even possible that we've had okay? If there's millions of particles of dark matter flying through my hand right now. How is it possible that not one particle of dark matter has hit the xenon? Like, how is that freaking possible? That would drive me crazy if I was a physicist. So, we, we, again, we don't know a lot about it. We know it interacts gravitationally. We know based on uh, measurements of the structure of the universe, it should have a certain distribution and density. Um, But we don't know anything about its interaction outside of gravity. It could have no interaction outside of gravity, and then we're completely hosed. Or it could have a very weak interaction, and that's what we're hoping for. And and the reason it keeps pushing forward is we haven't accidentally created anything like that in colliders. Colliders are are you know because like we said before, it takes a long time to make these experiments, and then you're stuck in that technology stage for a couple of decades until you build the next one. Um, Colliders are just now reaching the energy required to create particles that would interact at a very weak scale of energy. And so we think dark matter works at this very weak scale. And so we're hoping that the LHC at CERN in Europe will 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 accidentally create some dark matter or a particle that we can say, oh, that can be the dark matter. Or, or and, um, we, we just keep pushing forward because the, the idea of this experiment is exposure. You do a lot of mass over a long time. If, if, and, the, LH, if the Large Hadron Collider, I, I, had, I had seen that, that they were trying to do this. If the Large Hadron Collider makes dark matter, then do all of the Lux experiments kind of go away because then the Large Hadron Collider has done two things at once. For one, we've observed dark matter, which is kind of the point of the Lux experiment. But then two, now we can measure it a little more because of the fact that we can create it. No, you're, you're not going to get a rate away from... Um, so Lux is part of a, a suite of experiments that are called a direct detection because we're hoping to directly detect dark matter. There's indirect detection where what if dark matter interacts with itself and produces something we can measure. And then there is um, production. You're going to produce it at a collider. So, and then we, we're using a circular collider. Well, circular, circular uh, the particles produced in circular colliders can only be studied in certain ways. Or you can have a linear collider, which is what Slack used to be down in Stanford, um, produce particles that you can study in different ways and when you direct detect something you study it in even other ways and when you indirect detect something you study it in a fourth different set of ways so you need all four you need circular collider production linear collider production direct detection indirect detection to really study something like this mm, interesting get, so each get, one's only going to give you part of a puzzle and right. ideally you're you're firing on all cylinders and you got so, all of it 
Right. So if the LHC sees it soon, then we'll know it's at this energy phase. And Lux may not see it because it's not large enough, but there is an experiment called LZ, which is the merger of Lux and the merger of Zeppelin, which was a, a European xenon detector counterpart. Um, Lux uses about oh, like 400 kilograms of xenon with about 118 kilograms of actual clean um, fiducialized mass. LZ is going to use 10 tons of xenon. Seven five, with five to seven of those tons being the clean detection region in which they hope to see dark matter. Damn, the Europeans it, just going crazy. Well, it's 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 actually it's both. It's 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 a joint effort. Um, when Lux is done, it's going to be removed from its water tank, and LZ is going to be built into that water tank. Wow, cool. And that's one of the reasons that when when Lux was designed, its water tank was designed such that. Um, it could house the next phase multi-ton scale experiment. Wow, that was a great idea. Um, I imagine that whichever one happens first, um, like you guys, or or, the Lux dark matter experiment, um, or the Large Hadron Collider creating dark matter, that that would really kind of expedite the other group like if you guys are able to observe dark matter you can then give some maybe pointers to the lux people of like oh from what we observed you should maybe try this this and this or if they create it they can be like oh you might want to change this and this about your experiment and it'll be easier to capture right i yeah i mean exactly there will be an interplay between all the experiments and then again the theorists will have their field day no matter what Hey, our theories worked, or hey, we get to make more theories. Man, those sons of bitches. They really do get it better than you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, but right. they don't get to work a mile underground like I do. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's a question I have uh, coming up for you. Um, so let's, um, let's just really quickly, just in the sake of not making this like a four-hour-long interview, um, <laughs> if, you, if, if you could maybe in one minute, or as quickly as possible, uh, just explain what your current experiment is. Not the significance behind it. That'll be a separate question. But just okay. what it is. It's it's is it Majorana? Is that the way it's called? Yeah, it's it's pronounced Majorana. It's named after an Italian theorist from the '30s who unfortunately uh, disappeared. You, if you look him up, his name Ettore Majorana. Uh, we think there's evidence he popped up somewhere in the 50s, but I think he was fleeing fascist Italy and then just disappeared. Hmm. So, um, but he, it's called Majorana because this guy said, hey, we don't know why neutrinos have mass. Um, in fact, in the 30s, they didn't know why anything had mass. And now we know that most particles have mass because of the Higgs boson and the, the Higgs field. You know, that major discovery at the LHC uh, three years ago now, Mm -hmm. three and a half years ago. Um, But even now, the Higgs field doesn't explain why neutrinos have mass. Why is that? It it just doesn't. Do do, do neutrinos not interact with the Higgs field? Yeah, something like that. I I don't know the details. Okay. But it's, um, I mean, that has to be what it is. The neutrinos do not interact with the Higgs field. Everything else does. Electrons, quarks, they all do. 
Um, so sorry. Let me let me take a quick uh, try, put on my science hat again for about like fifteen seconds and try to explain the the Higgs field in fifteen seconds. So basically, electrons, all all these different types of uh, uh, what would those be called? Particles. Particles. Yeah. All these different types of particles have mass. We didn't know why they had mass. We couldn't tell. Theorized was this thing called the Higgs boson in the Higgs field. We were eventually able to create this inside a Large Hadron Collider and prove it. But basically, this Higgs field, if you want to look at it like this, would be like a um, like a, a spider web of its own type of particle that is is massive, I guess, in its own way. And when in as electrons, protons, whatever move around, they bump into the Higgs field. And it's only when they bump into the Higgs field that they like take some of the Higgs field mass with them. And it, like the Higgs field imparts mass into the other particles. It, was that a terrible explanation or No, that's good. It's it's exactly it's the strength of that interaction that we know as mass. What we measure as mass is the strength of the interaction of the Higgs field with a particle. Okay. So a photon has zero mass. It and, and so the, the in the Higgs boson is what people, if you've ever seen anyone refer to anything as the gob particle, it's what people refer to as the gob particle. And they say that because nothing could have ever come together gravitationally in the universe, obviously, if there was no mass. And Actually, nothing would it's, have. it's a... It's a, it's a um, it's uh, a cleaned up version of a theorist calling it the goddamn particle because he was annoyed. <laughs> he, no, this, this is true. <laughs> That's so funny. This I never knew that. I mean, people blow up. Physicists get annoyed with the god particle because it imparts all these religio philosophical um, implications. That's like, you know, whether you're a believer or not, and I'm a believer. You, there's just no reason to bring it into totally. the interactions of, ma- of matter. You know, it's just. <laughs> And so someone's like, oh, goddamn particle. And it's stuck. And now, but, you know, it's like the Big Bang was coined by a guy trying to belittle the idea that the entire universe exploded at one point and has been expanding since then. He that was belittling is that idea. Hilarious. But, yeah. I mean, but if you're a Calvin and Hobbes fan, you want to call it you know, the horrendous space kablooey instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny that he was trying to call it the goddamn particle. I just always assumed that it was called the god particle because it's like the universe couldn't exist without it, hence the god no. particle. No. But, uh, <laughs> all right. Interesting. Uh, but so anyways, so uh, neutrinos, for whatever reason, uh, are not really getting any mass. Right. Um, they have, they have, but we know they have mass because they, and you know, I I really need to look this up because it's my current research field, but I can never remember why this is. Um, neutrinos oscillate. There are three types of neutrinos that we know of, and they can become each other over long distances. So we know how thermonuclear fusion works. That's what fuels the sun. That produces neutrinos as a byproduct of the light and warmth we receive. Um, the flux of neutrinos here on Earth is about of electron neutrinos that are produced in the sun is about a third what it sh- what what is produced. What we detect is a third of what is produced. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, an experiment actually in the same place where Lux is the homesick experiment run by Ray Davis who won the 2002 Nobel Prize for his work, um, made this first measurement. And it started what is known as the, um, the solar neutrino problem. 
And then this year's new two physics Nobel Prize winners were two neutrino experiments that definitively measured the numbers of the three types of neutrinos and said, hey, we are measuring neutrinos from the sun and we can measure the electron type and the muon type and the tau type neutrinos so well that we've accounted for the oscillations of neutrinos into each other. And the only way they can oscillate is if they had mass. If neutrinos had zero mass, the three types of neutrinos would remain apart from each other. Um, and so so that, that's crazy. So it already, like, the whole... Uh, it's so funny how all these things that come up in physics just throw, like, a total monkey wrench into what we currently even understand to be physics and, like, how the world works. So basically... We we were so excited to find the Higgs boson because it was like, oh, hey, this explains kind of how this other stuff is actually working. Uh, this explains how these other things have mass. Meanwhile, the neutrinos are not interacting with the Higgs boson, which would, you know, then mean that the neutrinos have no mass. But then we just found out that they do have mass, even though they're not interacting with it. Right. I mean, I could show you the inside cover of a, a particle textbook of mine whose first edition is like the late 80s. And it said uh, it, it lists zero as the mass of the neutrino. Crazy. Because at that, at that point, they couldn't measure it. So the neutrino is very low mass, very weakly interacting, like dark matter. It's a weakly interacting particle. And so we have a very hard time making precise measurements of it. And it's neutral. It has no charge. So it's very hard to make a detector to measure it. So you're you, the, the Majorana experiment. You're uh, right. doing something with neutrinos. Right. So what we're looking for is we're taking, you know, going all technologies can be used for different applications. We're using basically hockey pucks of germanium, and we're hoping to see a neutrino signal from them, but a lack of a neutrino signal. So there are certain isotopes in nature that instead of um, doing a beta decay, so that is where a, the neutron, which in and of itself is um, unstable, it will decay with a half-life of, I think, like 8 or 15 minutes. Um, when bound together in a, nu- in, a, in a nucleus, neutrons gain stability. But the larger nuclei you have, the more neutrons you have. And so some of those neutrons are going to be unstable. Um, And so when they decay, they become a proton, emit a neutrino, and emit a beta particle, or what was discovered to be simply an electron. Is that that, the way that basically all neutrinos are formed? Is through that process? um, And through similar processes. Processes that involve neutrons becoming protons through decay protons becoming neutrons through capture of a beta or a neutrino. Okay. Um, if a, yeah. So that was how the neutrino was theorized and discovered because of beta decay. They said, Hey, there should be some, there should, we're very carefully measuring the energy before and after of this beta decay, but we're missing something in the after. And Enrico Fermi said, well, it's like a little, uh, you know, famous Italian physicist. It's a, it's a little neutral particle. It's a little neutrino. <laughs> and that's literally where the name came from. It's, so what it, he, it, people before that couldn't measure it. So they were like, there, it's like, what's going on? There's nothing there. But then he saw it or something, even though he couldn't measure it. Well, he, he, he saw that something was missing. And what could explain it? Well, a, a very small, low mass 
neutrally charged or lack of charge particle. And then some decades later, it was first measured. And then some decades later after that, we're like, oh, there's three, there's at least three types of them and they oscillate into each other. So what Majorana is doing is some isotopes, instead of a single beta decay, they simultaneously double beta decay. Two neutrons in a nucleus, both double beta decay, are both, both beta decay, give it, having two neutrons become protons, emitting electrons and neutrinos. And that's something well measured. Um, it has a half-life of like 10 to the 20 years, but, you know, Avogadro's number is 10 to the 23. So if you get, like, a kilogram of mass, you can measure a, a double beta decay spectrum. Well, if the neutrino is its own antiparticle, it will interact in a way that in a double beta decay, you see a, instead of a spectrum, spectrum of energy, you see a spike of energy at one point in your measurements because you're missing that energy being taken away from the two neutrinos and it goes entirely into the two electrons. And Ettore Majorana... Because the two... Because one of the... New, the new, one neutrino would be the other neutrino's antimatter and they would just... Right. Okay. They, they, yeah. And Ettore Majorana, his theory of how neutrinos gain mass said a consequence of that is that the neutrino is its own antiparticle. And so we're looking for that signal and um, other consequences of that signal could, could also help us. What is the neutrino mass? Because we have no, we know with certain constraints, it can't be bigger than this. It can't be smaller than that, but it's a wide range of masses but we know the difference of masses between um, the different neutrino particles, so different types of neutrinos. So Majorana is looking for what is called a neutrino-less double beta decay signal, where we're using germanium, but you can also use an isotope of xenon or an isotope of tellurium or an isotope of neo neodymium or an isotope of... Niobium, I think, but that's kind of hard to make into a detector. Um, and so we have uh, hockey pucks of germanium. I call them hockey pucks. They're not little hockey pucks, but they're roughly that size and shape. Mm-hmm. Are a very good particle detector de- uh, technology. And, and we're just making germanium out of the isotope that will give us double beta decay. And so we hope to see this signal coming from our own detectors detected by them and so Majorana, the Majorana experiment is looking for this neutrino-free or neutrino-less double beta decay signal, which would help explain um, the the nature of the mass of the neutrino. So, all right, a couple... Well, first, let me just say something, because I realized that I kind of said something that I, I didn't um, explain that I got from watching a video earlier. Um, so somebody found out that neutrinos are are super bizarre in that um, neutrinos in their matter form and neutrinos in their antimatter form are the exact same. Is that correct? Um, we're hoping to show that. Oh, oh, so that's the point of this experiment, is to show that right. they're the exact yep. same. Okay. Um, interesting. 
So that was actually going to be my, my question for you. What was so? What is I guess the significance of this and the point of this? And it's to prove that that a antimatter neutrino and a regular matter neutrino are the same thing. Yep. <laughs> so basically, you're 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 t- doing the process to make that normally would make neutrinos and you want to see that there are no neutrinos there. And if there's no neutrinos there, that would signify the fact that a regular neutrino met up with an antimatter neutrino and they annihilated each other. Um, close. It's, it's, it's what's called in physics, a virtual process. So we don't actually see that interaction. Um, we just see the consequence of that interaction they wouldn't, so, you know, you may know when matter and matter and matter meet, E equals MC squared, you get a lot of E because you've got these M's C squaring together. Right. <laughs> but um, you, that's not, that's, I thought that's what was happening, but I was wrong. It's, it's a virtual process that's called um, um, neutrino exchange. So the two neutrons exchange neutrinos, and, but then all we see are the two electrons out of it. And um, because you're reducing your system from four resultant bodies to two resultant bodies, instead of a nice spectrum over a broad energy range, you see a very narrow spike in energy at a very specific value depending on the isotope. So, and it's that what we're looking. We're looking for you set up a histogram of of energy, and you hope in that bin, and right around it that we see counts uh, of um, that specific energy at a very rarely occurring rate. Okay. Um, and then that spike in energy would basically be the, um, the regular neutrino meeting the, the antimatter neutrino. Right. Um, um, again, it's, it's, it's not that. It's um, because I've been getting this wrong. I want to make sure I, I get this across. It's not the mutual annihilation we're seeing. It's that because they interacted – the energy imparted to the two electrons oh, is more is okay. more and very narrowly focused. Okay, is there a a matter version of a neutrino and an antimatter version, or are they all asexual? Like I think, like <laughs> I think seahorses are like asexual. Like the seahorse impregnates itself and stuff like that. Like it can go back and forth between being male and female. Is that like the way a neutrino is, or are there actual matter ones and actual antimatter ones? Um, it's snails that can do that, not seahorses. <laughs> Fair enough. Male seahorses are the ones that carry, but female horses still have eggs, and male seahorses still have sperm. Oh, it's just that there you go. The male seahorses carry the children to term. That's very sweet. Um, yeah, it is. You know, <laughs> we got to do it for the babes, right? Yeah. Um, uh, no, and, and in fact, from normal beta decay, it's an anti-neutrino that we see. And from thermonuclear fusion from the sun, it's a normal neutrino that we see. So we do know of specific neutri- um, um, uh, matter and antimatter versions of the neutrino, but and I think I'm going out on a limb here. I think that's because of everything else that goes on. We know that the neutrino in those specific places has to be anti-neutrino, antimatter, or matter in those specific cases. But what this this and other similar experiments are hoping to point out is that they're one and the same. That right now we say, oh, that interaction 
involves an antineutrino, but that interaction involves a, a, a matter neutrino. But in the end, we'll just say there is a neutrino in those interactions. We're basically like getting up to 2015. Like the way that the way that things socially are in 2015. It's like your gender doesn't really matter. It's just like what kind of a person are you? You know, it's what's on the inside that matters. So is anybody we've kind of skirted around the whole antimatter thing. And hopefully that hasn't uh, left people questioning what the hell we're talking about. So uh, anybody that has read, I think it's like Angels and Demons. The whole weapon in that in that book is antimatter. Yeah. So so, uh, is it? that any type of antimatter interacting with any type of matter will cause a huge explosion for lack of a better term because they annihilate themselves and all this energy is released like you said or does a a specific type of antimatter have to interact with its opposite um so like if there was antimatter blake if antimatter Blake walked up to anti uh, to regular matter you and you guys high fived, there wouldn't be an explosion because that's antimatter Blake and regular matter you. But if antimatter Blake walk up and high fived matter Blake and we high fived, there would be a giant explosion because we are the same thing. Does it? Ha- Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So a a normal matter proton and an anti and a nor and an anti electron would not mutually annihilate because they're different particles. Okay. But an anti-electron, which is called a positron, an electron, those mutually annihilate. Okay. And in fact, that's what the LHC does, is the LHC spins, sends protons in one direction and anti-protons in the other direction and smashes them together. Okay. Um, so how how is it that these, uh, like anti-neutrinos in the sun are not just constantly or is that part of what's fueling the sun is anti-neutrinos just like annihilating themselves against regular neutrinos well so the the sun only produces regular neutrinos okay there's no anti-neutrinos produced in the thermonuclear fusion okay okay but we have anti-neutrinos here on earth so so then um a beta decay a normal beta decay of a nucleus of a radioactive nucleus produces an antineutrino. And is that the only antimatter like on the face of the planet? Um, Aside from what we're creating in CERN? I want to say yes, but I'm not sure. I think for the most part, yes. I think, be, oh, yeah, because we live in a matter-dominated universe, anytime there would be antimatter, it's going to find normal matter and annihilate. Right. Especially if it's like electrons and protons and neutrons, which is everything you and I interact with and every human and every tree and dog and book and t- computer screen, you know, those are all electrons, protons, neutrons. Yeah. Neutrinos are, they're very, so, so even if we do have the antineutrinos from beta decay and the matter neutrinos from thermonuclear fusion, they're not going to find each other because they're so rarely interact. They're so weakly and rarely interacting. Right. So let me give you this. It might help, help, um, let me actually, this will be fun. So lead, this might help you understand how weakly interacting neutrinos are. You know lead, right? Lead is very dense, very heavy. Lead is what you put on, your, what is put, a lead apron is what you have to wear when you get x-rays, yeah, right? Yeah. Because lead is very dense, it very easily blocks x-rays. Um, 
You've heard of alpha particles? No. So an alpha particle is another form of radiation. It's where nucleus spits out an entire helium nucleus. So something big like uranium decays and spits out a helium nucleus, which is two protons and two neutrons. Wow. That's called an alpha particle because it was the first one found. A beta particle is, like I described, an electron spitting out from a neutron decay. That was the second one found. It's beta. A gamma is simply an energetic photon. That was the third one found. That's why they're called alpha, beta, gamma, just Hmm. the order of which they were discovered. Hmm. So a a piece of tissue paper could stop an alpha. A... A, 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 a book could stop a beta. A block of lead will stop a gamma. So the smaller something is, the larger you need to stop it. Right. So how much lead do you think you need to absolutely 100% sure, be sure that you have stopped a neutrino? Uh, I'm going to say... One inch. No. One millimeter. No, much larger. Oh, okay. Much larger. A mile. Nope. More than that? More than a mile. No. Ten miles. Uh, how long should I keep you guessing? No, yeah, just tell us. Just tell <laughs> A light year. You need one light year of lead to stop one neutrino? Yep, that's how weakly interacting it is. So it's it, so to your to that point it it basically is all it's like the closest thing we have to dark matter it's basically just going through it's just going through everything like a ghost yeah it, exactly it's called the ghost particle and in fact it was thought to have possibly been dark matter early in the field but other measurements and cosmological measurements have shown it can't be neutrinos it has to be something different um but yeah the neutrino. Basically, the idea of one thing dark matter could be would be a very weird cousin of the neutrino, which I don't need to go into here, but that's the idea of one possibility of the particle form of dark matter. Right, right. Interesting, man. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's get back to some regular physics questions, um, hopefully out of, out of the weeds for everyone here a little bit. So... Um, <laughs> Do you feel that any of the experiments that are being done could be dangerous, like uh, per se, accidentally create like a black hole? I know that that was like a big deal when they were looking for the Higgs boson or that we accidentally create way too much antimatter and we have a um, angels and demons Dan Brown situation on our hands. Um, no, I mean, we, we will actually, accidentally create black holes in the LHC, but they'll be so small they'll disappear in a nanosecond. You know, the black, a black hole is not going to grow exponentially and swallow the Earth. That's physically impossible. Right. Um, we create antimatter all the time in these experiments, but um, it immediately finds normal matter and annihilates, and then we measure that release of energy. That, I mean, that's how these experiments gather their data. So clearly not too dangerous. We're doing it all no, the time. No. Um, question two. Is it, <clears throat> is it boring to go to the same lab every day and just like stare at the same crap every day? Like you were talking about like, oh, but they don't get to go down in the uh, mine and like work on this stuff. Is it like, 
the, in this one documentary, I saw this guy that had been working on this same Lux type experiment, like trying to find dark matter um, for years and years and years and years and years. It's like that's a long time to be looking for something and not finding it. You know, um, um, does that get boring? Well, I. So I spent ten year, nine years getting a PhD, but you know, I'm trying to figure out where is my career going take me? Am I going to stay in research physics? Am I going to go into industry? Am I going to, you know, partner with my wife in ministry and help the homeless? You know, what are we, what, what am I going to do with my life? And that's me personally, but there are people out there for, they are always going to want to do physics because it's always going to be exciting for them. It's, um, even though that you're doing something, you're not making the same widget every day. Eight hours a day. Yeah, you're doing something different. The work might be similar because that's the work you know how to do. But for a physicist, a physicist isn't trained to do physics. It's a physicist is trained, and all scientists to one degree or another are trained to seek out questions to teach themselves the skills they need to answer those questions and then to attempt to answer them and verify the result. And that's what science does and forensic science and any sort of investigation of anything is, you know, you're, you're looking, it, it might be boring. You know, going underground isn't boring, but in the winter, when I go there in Jan- at the end of January, it's going to be dark when I go underground at seven in the morning. It's going to be dark when I come above at five forty-five at night. Yeah. Luckily, I only do that four days a week when I'm on site in South Dakota. So that can be disheartening in a I don't get to see the sun today sort of thing. Yeah, but everyone else working in in South Dakota that that they <laughs> have the same stuff going on, you know. Exactly. Exactly. So there's those aspects of it. Um, but you know, my PhD advisor, I can't imagine him doing him doing any other sort of work. He is like a pig in shit when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> you know, it, he he's he's been ups and downs in his career. He didn't know if he was going to get tenure somewhere. He had experiments not you know not coming out right. He's worked with horrible people, but in the end, he is just happy as a clam doing physics research. And that's what it takes to be successful is that no matter what, you're just going to keep plugging away at it and put working your hardest to, to, to work at it. Yeah. So this next question is a bit philosophical and then this will actually lead into um, a listener question that I got. So I had a, a listener write in a question that they wanted me to ask you. Um, so I'll ask that in, in just a bit, but before I ask that um, and I, I don't want this to get like too, uh, religious you know like i don't want to have have any sort of like religious argument or conversation or anything but um so i i used to be very religious um and then i got more into science and i i'm now don't but don't believe in god per se um it's like i do but i don't but i the the reason that i that i don't believe in like the standard idea of god that i used to believe in is not is not because like, oh, I, I know so much more about the universe now, therefore that debunks God. It's quite the opposite, which is I realized, it, like, I feel like 
and this, I guess, is its own question. Like, do you feel like there's any such thing as real science and real facts and real knowledge? Like, the more that I learned, the more that I was like, holy crap, like, there's no actual knowledge out there. Like, we just don't know anything. Like, everything, you know, the standard model of physics has basically been crushed. And, like, all these things that we hold true as science at any given point in time is only true for that given point in time. It's never true. It Like, there has been no so few facts that have like scientifically speaking that have stood up over like millennia you know like everything is subjective and we always find out a better answer to it and when i looked at that that's what kind of ruined my belief in in god was just like i don't know what the hell i'm talking about like like i don't think that there's anything like that i that i know so um i'm just going to be i guess like ambiguous on my belief with anything that's going on out there you know um like for all i know like i'm gonna get reincarnated for all i know there is a god for all you know like i i don't really know what the hell's going on out there um do you feel that being a scientist and and well, yeah. So first answer to those two questions, I was like, do you think that there, are, that there is kind of such thing as like real science and real facts and real knowledge out there? And has, has being a scientist at all jaded you um, in your like religious life? Um, okay. Yeah. Those are, those are good questions. Yeah. The reality is real. I mean, Rene Descartes said something once, right? We all know what he's said. Cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. And at some level, you really only know your thoughts. But we can't have built up a physical reality about us without those things being real. And that's getting, you know, you can get into philosophy and be like, no, we're just dreams of each other, man. <laughs> like, all right, all right, okay, put down the tabs, put down the bongs. <laughs> yeah. You get it, you're you're in college and you're thinking for yourself for the first time. Awesome. I was there once. We get it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we can't have the modern technology we have without science being right. Without. So what science does is it builds a model. It collects evidence and it builds models based on that evidence that, the, that can predict other evidence that we go collect that will keep fueling this, not in a circle, but like in a spiral. It just keeps it circling, but in a direction. And so, um, like, you know, like a corkscrew. And so, um, evidence begets models, models beget predictions, predictions beget search for new evidence, which finds that evidence, which begets models, and keep going forward. So and, these bigger questions that we're asking in physics, basically what you're saying is that it's not like we're necessarily debunking an old quote-unquote fact, or that we're debunking an old thing, it's that we are evolving that and moving it forward. Right, I mean, and along the way it involves debunking. So we've debunked heliocentrism. Because if you look into the stuff they were saying to really say, no, the sun has to be the center. And the reason that we see the observations of the planets is because the planet's orbits are in orbits that are in orbits. And there's these things called epicycles. And that was to explain why we would see Mars move backwards for a time and then move forward again. Well, if you just moved your model to one where both the Earth and the Mars are moving around a central point, that explains everything, and it's so much simpler. Mm -hmm. 
So we do debunk things along the way. We debunk the humors. You know, you don't get sick because your humors are out of balance. You get sick because of germ theory, right? Because of viruses. Because, you know, and even that has gone on, like your genetics. Your genetics aren't solid. There's epigenetics. Yeah. What you do in this life will affect how your genetic code is expressed, which will be passed on to your, your um, offspring. And, you know, all of this will be both debunked and evolved and knowledge throughout the future. So there is reality, and science does its best to build a model. On the other hand, that's all that science does in my opinion, is that science builds a model. It does help describe reality, but some people, Richard Dawkins, makes science a god in and of itself and says that that's the be-all, end-all that we need to worry about. And, you know, if we want to get into religion here, saying there is no God, but he himself has put, and others like Richard Dawkins, I'm not a fan of his, so you know, he's never going to hear this. He's not going to care that some American physicist is calling him out. You know? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried. But all he's done is said, there is no God in the sky. There is no one to worship. I'm going to put science in his place, which he ha- that's what he's done. But others will say, no, he's made, you know, reason is what we should focus on. Well, now you've put reason in a place. You know, he, humanity is always going to find something to look up to. You yeah. know, there's, there's a great South Park episode from sometime in college, so early 2000s, where I think it was when Richard Dawkins was really starting to get um, popular. That's the guy I, that wrote The Elegant Universe, right? No, no. He wrote The God, uh, the God Hypothesis. Okay. Um, he's an evolutionary biologist. He invented the concept of a meme, actually. Oh, damn. Um, but um, it was – oh, The God Delusion. That's his book. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Elegant Universe is Brian Cox at okay. – um, Brian Cox or Brian Green? I always get those two I think confused. it's Brian Green. Yeah, he's a professor at Columbia in theoretical physics. Okay. Um, anyways, there's a great South Park episode where – so Cartman gets sent to the future and there's this whole Buck Rogers in the 20th, 25th century sort of thing. And there's sentient otters and humans. Oh and my God, that episode's out. so good. Right. Because they show in the end, no matter what, you know, they were arguing over, hey, Star Child, you were from the time of the Dawkins. What is the correct, um, the, the correct interpretation of atheism? Which, which atheism should we, is most correct to follow? And they're simply pointing out humans will find a reason to kill each other, as we're as we've been seeing, unfortunately, in the past year. Yeah. Um, so going, so it's it's um, we have to be careful about where. My point is, we have to be careful about how much science describes reality, but it's also not the be all end all. It's just a description, and yeah. that description will change as as I described, and it has changed. In the late 19th century, people thought physics is solved. We've got two little niggling things, but science is physics is solved. We figured everything out. You know what those two niggling things have become? Quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which, which just made all technology. of physics yeah. just explode. Uh, right. But so all of that, then, then seeing all of that, that that hasn't made it difficult for you as as a religious person, like seeing the constant change uh, of ideas. Um, you're still able to hold on to your religion. 
Well, I, I had to I had to figure that out in my life. At the end of high school, I was ready to throw it away, and I took a break for a few years, and then I came back to um, the church body that I had grew, grown up in to kind of you know nurse me back to a religious faith, and um, you know if if, if you're going to ask, well, you know. But we can't describe things, or you know, people use the Bible as a science book, or blah blah blah. I'm like, yeah, those people are wrong. The Bible's not a science book. You know, <laughs> the Bible is a description of people's experiences with what I believe to be God um, throughout history. Right. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I had to figure out how to place science in the proper context, and what I described to you is my proper context. Science is great. It explains lots of things. Without that way of thinking, we can't live the life or the society we have today. But in the end, that's all that it is, is a method, a toolbox for describing the universe and producing technology. Right. It's not uh, it's not its own belief system, or it should not, I guess, be its own right, belief right. system. Right, right. You know, I'm... I'm, I'm a monotheistic Christian. I believe God's the only one God. I believe in the Trinity and those, you know, those weird wacky things that w- us wacky Christians believe in. But, <laughs> you know, there's a give and play between it all. And some days I'm jaded and cynical and some days I'm really open hearted and, and ready to embrace. That's so, great, man. I am really happy for you. I, I hope I can get back to uh, that point one day my uh my mom who is probably listening to this right now she's uh, she always you know wants me to uh come back to faith of some kind and i uh it's uh like i always tell her i'm just like you act like i like don't want to be coming back or something like the i having faith is a wonderful thing like you have this great thing on your side there's this thing to believe in and more importantly like i really hope that i can come back to something like that um before I die one day, the idea of being on your deathbed and having no faith in anything, like, <laughs> like not just no faith, but like no faith in anything that happens next, that, that makes the whole experience a lot scarier, you know? Um, yeah. So I'm hoping that one day uh, I, I muster up like a, a little faith in something, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, like maybe it will be, re- maybe I'll be on my deathbed. Like I know I'm going to be an otter in the next life. <laughs> I'll be one of those otters from the South park episode. It's going to be great. Um, but yeah, enough about me. Um, so, and onto the, uh, the listener question. So, uh, listener question comes from at vinyl coast on Twitter. And he says, will theoretical physics build a bridge between religion and science? And he says, sometimes QM, which I assume is quantum mechanics. Sometimes quantum mechanics can seem like a belief system. Um, yeah. So about quantum mechanics, it is such a weird and twisted way of thinking than, than what you would have approaching it. But yeah, it can seem like a, a a belief system because you have to believe, you have to understand that it's like X, Y, and Z, and that's just the way it is. There's, you know, there are deep theorists that are trying to explain why quantum mechanics is the way, why nature at the fundamental level is probabilistic and not deterministic. And you know, I've read articles and papers about people saying, no, it is deterministic. It just looks like it's probabilistic. Um, so yeah, quantum mechanics can feel like a, uh, uh, a belief system sometimes. Um, no, I don't think, 
um, theoretical physics will bridge a gap. I don't think religion or philosophy will bridge the gap. I think it's up to us to say, these are two different things that look at the universe differently, but they're both looking at the universe. So um, just like, you know, to tie it back, just like you need direct detection and indirect detection and production from two different types of colliders at least to fully understand dark matter, I feel like you need an, a, a philosophical view and an imperialistic view not imperialistic, but a, sorry, an empiricist view. Yeah, not from the empire, but from, um, <laughs> but from gathering evidence. Empiricism. Yeah. yeah. Um, if it to, was strictly uh, empirical, that would that would be so sad. You know, like a right. very sad way to live. I talked about the sad, the, <laughs> the sad, uh, the sad existence that I'm living in in my head, but I still at least feel like a spiritual connection to something, and I believe that something is happening in some way. If you, if you believe none of that at all, and everything is just at face value, man, what a like hollow world to be living in, and like what, what then the point of any of the science or whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean, but I, I listen to plenty of podcasts. On, and you know, mostly comedians, and uh, most of them are atheists. And I'm not going to say they're living empty lives because they obviously are living great lives and they're doing what they love. They just have a different viewpoint of things. Yes, you know, they they um, are you a fan of Firefly at all? The show? Yeah, I've never watched it. I, I need oh, to okay. watch it. Yeah. So in the box set, um, Joss Whedon, the creator director. His commentary on the last episode, he really goes is really great. He goes into his personal views and history of existentialism and nihilism, and how he didn't quite get to nihilism. He got to existentialism, and at the time when I was watching this on DVD box set in two thousand four, I had come back to my faith, but I was still, you know, I was reading a lot of existentialist authors. I was reading some Sartre. I was reading a lot of, oh, I was reading Camus. I was reading, um, who's the guy that did Steppenwolf and Siddhartha Hesse, reading Hesse. Um, and they got a little bleak, sure. But I was thinking a lot about existentialism. And one of the things that Joss Whedon points out in this episode is that the reason existentialism becomes nihilism is because you're like, oh my gosh, things are just things. Nothing means anything. Where his viewpoint was, wow, things are things. They don't have to have a meaning. And that's, that is cool. And that's I think for me, very true. Yeah. That could be a liberating thought as well. Yeah. And I think for me as, as an, as a, you know, coming back to my faith and as a college um, physics student figuring out am I, you know, working my way towards applying to grad school thing, I have similar thoughts, wow, things are just things and that's awesome because we can study their thingness and that's physics or chemistry you know, or material sciences right. and they don't have to have philosophical meaning beyond that they can, but they don't have to and I think that's a great, you know, I, I thank Joss Whedon. I love Firefly. I, 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 I've been a huge fan of his since I watched Buffy in high school. So um, he, uh, that was really helpful to me. Like, oh, wow. And he's an atheist. 
but he 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 came to he discovered existentialism and it helped him in his viewpoint this way and i had the same conclusion but it helped me in my in my different viewpoint man straight up atheism is so interesting to me like the idea that you would think that someone who believes in god is quote unquote like silly like oh haha you think there's god how weird and yet you are equally as certain that there isn't one like isn't that just as silly like it to it, I, it, I don't know to 100% believe that there is not to to say that i know without question there is not god um that that's the same thing like to me that is the exact same thing you know as right. saying to, with without with certainty there absolutely 100% is god is the exact same thing as being an atheist so how does the atheist uh like poke any fun at the believer you know exactly what's the p value <laughs> yeah man all right so off off of man this uh this interview's gotten a little philosophical so back to the science um what physics discovery do you think would change human civilization the most philosophically speaking and what physics discovery do you think would change human civilization the most uh like practically and lifestyle speaking um it may not be physics explicitly but as i told mom my mom once long ago physics is everything it's the underlying of all physical processes so any physical anything is because of physics. <laughs> right. So saying that, um, I, th I think I think information and then tech um, tra um, transportation are are really going to help change things. Once we can change our transportation away from fossil fuels into harvesting light better or using waves or wind energy better. Um, and 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 it can be cheap and you know this has been a dream for decades of course but um cheap reliable green fuel i think practically will change the world um of course you know until we can either get rid of capitalism or overhaul capitalism capitalism will always find a way to ruin the best of everything you know i'm no socialist but i also see the writing on the wall capitalism is all about greed and, you know, that's why we have a 99% versus the 1% sort of. That's true. Idea. But to that, uh, I mean, the other side of that coin and the, the, the good part, if you want to call it that, about capitalism is that if some freaking kid in his mom's garage right now finds a really inexpensive way to harness solar energy, um, A, that kid's going to become a billionaire. But B, immediately fossil fuels will go, you know, it's all, it, it, like capitalism is all a cost analysis. Like there has to be a cost analysis for everything. Right. No, you no, know? you're right, you're right, you're right. And, um, you know, this is another philosophical tangent. It's just my, <laughs> my, my, my views on things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that lifestyle-wise, obviously, definitely would be the biggest yeah, one. What do you think philosophically, like, two, I, I guess, two Vinyl Coast question about, like, bridging religion and science and yada, yada, yada. Like, do you think that there's any sort of physics discovery that could happen that would really change a lot of people's beliefs on the planet or would really get people thinking a different way about things? I think extraterrestrial contact. You know, if and when that happens, I think that will be a huge game changer. Because... I 
either either our worst impulses will come together and we'll be we will become the get off our lawn an entire planet of get off our lawn or our entire planet of we don't like your kind here or we could be like oh my goodness there's something else out there let's let's finally band together and explore it yeah you know i was a star trek fan so i'm i'm hoping for the latter but um i also know humanity so totally it'll be funny <laughs> if they if if like aliens were to come here and try to hang out with us and like they were a very stable species like everyone was very like everyone was basically the same you know like uh personality wise and belief system wise and stuff like that and they were to come here and it's like some people want to kill them some people like want to give them all their money some people like want to have sex with them it's like everyone just has their own thing here you know yeah i'm I'm waiting for you know there's a dane cook as you, you probably know comedian who was popular in the late 90s and through to the 2000s he has this bit where uh he says what if aliens come down and they open up the spaceship and they're giant 50 foot tall native americans and we're just like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) that is a very good joke (laughs) or or we could you know i forget where else i heard this but um another uh, some podcast some years ago it was uh um our greatest worry could be that Aliens are going to Native American us. <laughs> yeah, like oh, you have resources we want. Here, here's some here's some pox covered blankets. Totally, man. And <laughs> and you like to you know you like to think that a a species if they were capable of space travel and stuff that they would be evolved beyond that socially speaking. But I mean, who the hell knows, man? Yeah, uh, yeah. I definitely don't know. Uh, Let's see here. Yeah, let's try to um, let's try to kind of wind this thing down. Uh, sure. First, really quickly, uh, if you could let us know, because this is always I've just always been curious about this. Um, if you don't feel like saying, that's totally cool. Um, but like, who who writes your checks? Like, who do you, like when you're working on a big experiment, like the Lux Dark Matter? Like, who the hell are you getting paid by? And then, how much do you get paid as an experimental particle physicist? Um. So how much you get paid, not nearly as much as if I went across the bay and started working in industry. <laughs> Definitely. Um, if I was a better coder, I could go into the city, San Francisco, that is, listeners, um, and, and work for a startup or an established company and make um, integer – I could make integer factors greater than I work – than I make as a, a physicist. Um, who writes my checks? So in the United, so I'm I work at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. It's part of the National Laboratory System, as established and managed by the Department of Energy. So my paycheck comes from the Department of Energy, which is an arm of the United States government. Which means you guys write my checks. Sweet, love it. I am um, happy to be writing your paycheck. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's the Department of Energy, and there's also the National Science Foundation, which is another funding arm um, for uh, for research science in the United States. So, cool. so those, those those are the two big ones, and then if you're in medicine, there's the National Institutes of Health, and then there could be you know, especially if you're in condensed matter sort of things, you could couple with a company that is interested in new technologies, and you're 
guys I knew in grad school, a student and his advisor were developing a denser, better plastic um, uh, storage system that would basically eventually take over DVDs and CDs as a as a portable storage system, storage technology, and they started their own company wow. to to develop the technology. That's awesome. Um, Adam, let's uh, yes. let's finish off with some advice for some people. So tell us. Uh, if if someone wanted to get into the sciences, being that like experimental physics, particle physics, theoretical physics, whatever the hell, uh, what what sort of advice would you give them? Obviously, it sounds like there's a ton of school. You said it, it's 10 years for your PhD, so that's certainly a consideration. What other considerations should people be making, thoughts that they should be having if they uh, might want to get into the sciences? Well, I mean, as I said, I don't make a lot of money. I make enough to survive in the Bay Area. Um if I had stayed in Cleveland, Ohio as a research scientist, even though I'd be making less because the cost of living is lower, I would be living a little better because the cost of living is lower. Um, so no one comes into this for money. And anytime, any, oh, you know, the, the, the furthest right of the arguments of, oh, those researchers are just in it for the money. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we don't make money. Sure, we make more than burger flippers, and we make more than the manager at your favorite footlocker. Yeah, there's but- probably nobody that goes – you guys probably have the <laughs> lowest um, time in school to uh, income post-school ratio. Yeah, I mean, come on, look at Bill Gates. He didn't even graduate from college, and he's one of the world's richest people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did five years of undergrad, eight and a half years of grad school, and I'm never going to be Bill Gates. So, um, But, you know, that's not my focus in life. So if you want to go into science, it, ha- it has to be your focus in life. Not to the detriment, so you want to live a full life. But my PhD advisor said his wife – Girl, you know, girlfriend who became his wife years ago eventually realized she is married not only to him but to physics, and she has to realize. <laughs> and he had to realize, I can't. You know, I have a family, and that they need to be first, and physics can be a tied for first, but it can't be the only first. Yeah. So you know, live a full life. Um, have your fun. I have hobbies that I don't have a lot of time or money to do, but I, I do as I can. And um, my wife's in grad school now, so she's getting a Master of Divinity. And so, you know, I do a lot of the uh, cooking and, and, and kitchen maintenance and then help with the, uh, you know, cleaning and vacuuming when, when she's swamped with papers, as she is right now. So, you know, I try to live a full life and be a loving husband, and I try to make time for friends. And I tonight I'm going to be tasting rare Belgian beers with a friend of mine who works in Belgium. He travels back and forth to Belgium, and he brings back suitcases full of Belgian beer. That sounds so, like a really good friend. Yeah, so um, I just have to give money to a ministry, which I'm glad to, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Cool, so yeah, man. advice, you know, you're not in it for the money. Live a full life and make sure you love it because it is a lot of hard work and little pay for something you don't absolutely love. Yeah, good advice, man. I uh, 
Appreciate that. Um, Adam, dude, thank you so much. We appreciate everything. We'll put links up on the site to all the different things that we talked about so people can look at resources. Um, and uh, yeah, man, thanks for the full two hours. It's like by far the longest episode. So thanks for spending all the extra wow. time. No, of course, Blake. Is this going to be like a two or three parter release or something? <laughs> this is <laughs> might, Yeah, might have to do it like that. It's definitely not a half hour intern. This is, uh, right. yeah. So yeah, thanks so much, Adam. Take care, man. Of course. Yeah. Goodbye, Blake. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Just wanted to give you all a quick reminder that if you have any ideas for the show, be that a person that you would like me to interview or just a topic that you would like me to cover on the show and you want me to track someone down, or if you have a question for an episode like today's or any other episode that you were kind of biting your tongue and wishing that I had asked, you can submit all that through my website on the Submit Your Ideas link. And I will either track down an old guest to ask those questions for you or find that new guest that you want to hear from. Thanks so much.